0: Live! And welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about multilateralism and global health. We began the week with one of our quarantine big thinkers discussions with Arancha Gonzalez, who's the foreign minister of Spain. And she used a very interesting metaphor to describe what we learned about the status of global government during this crisis.
1: We thought we were living in some sort of apartment block. Some apartments were bigger, some apartments were smaller. Some tenants were richer, some were poorer. But this building had walls and it had doors. And if you did not want to talk to your neighbor, you just simply close your door. And that was enough. And what we are discovering now through this crisis in a very nasty way is that we are living in a condo. The condo is in uh, disrepair some of the walls and some of the doors have disappeared so whether we like our neighbors or not we are connected to them and actually this condo is pretty shaky in that its foundations are shaky today so we need to make as neighbors a big effort at repairing our common house
0: so if we start off with this diagnosis it'd be really interesting to go more deeply into what we need to do to rebuild our house together and to help us make sense of what the COVID crisis means for the multilateral system, I have an all-star cast. First of all, from some remote bit of Sweden, we have Gunilla Carlson, who's an ECFR council member, has been for a long time, and has looked at many of the biggest global health challenges from two really interesting vantage points in recent years. For many years, she was the Swedish Development Minister for International Development Cooperation and one of the big donors in terms. of of global health on the world stage. And until the end of 2019, she was also the the head of UNAIDS. Also down the line, I think from somewhere slightly less remote, I think from London, we have Anthony Dworkin, who is ECFR's expert on questions of multilateralism. So thank you both for joining me. Maybe we can just start with the big picture, Gunilla. You've been working on global health issues for many years now, you've been very active both at a national level as development minister, but also trying to understand how the UN system and the multilateral system can help deliver solutions, as well as actually being involved in in some quite interesting multi-stakeholder frameworks, like Gavi, where you were working with big companies as well as with donor governments. How would you characterize our situation at the moment?
1: Well, at the moment, I think a lot of people are scared and it's also that we don't know what's going to happen. But equally, we see that there is a need for good politics and good governance and also multilateral solutions, while we're also building the trust between citizens and nations. So I think in these depth of a crisis that will perhaps take a long time for us to come over, we can also find new solutions and reinvent what we do already have. So I think we have to stay optimistic, but it's going to take a lot of time, this, and it's going to also require a lot of work. And just to think what happened when the world was in crisis before, we have tended to strengthen multilateralism. And I think, as it was so questioned before, now is the big opportunity to not only talk with politicians about the need for it, but also with the global citizens. But how do you think this is going to happen? Because it it was interesting when the
0: global financial crisis blew up, the first instinct of... President Obama, Gordon Brown and other leaders was to, to call a G20 meeting and to think about multilateral solutions. This time round, the first instinct of, of most governments was about closing their national borders and cutting funding to the WHO. And so, well, not everyone has done that, but President Trump has done that. And there hasn't been very much cooperation between China and America on it. In fact, they seem to use the crisis as an opportunity to, to carry on their battle for hearts and minds in other parts of the world. Where where do you think the energy for multilateral solutions is going to come from?
1: So I think, of course, European Union will have a very important role to play with its partners. And partners doesn't necessarily only need to be political institutions. You mentioned global business as well. There is a real opportunity for us to start to think more of partnerships. And as you said, I mean, we have a crisis for multilateralism and shared solutions even before we came into the corona crisis. And this bipolar world with the the United States and China, there is a lot of things that, of course, are also dependent on what their different nations are going to do. We can't really predict what will happen in the U.S. presidential election. And that's why I think Europe shouldn't waste any time to just think about these questions ourselves, because we have the added value of soft power We have the institutions and we have been created after other world tragedies. So I think there is a lot of opportunities, but that needs that leaders step up now and stop just only crisis management, but also come together and think what's going to happen next. And there, I think, Ursula von der Leyen, the German presidency and the autumn can be very, very productive if we get this right.
0: What do you think, Anthony? You've been working a lot on different multilateral projects. We even wrote a paper together a couple of years ago asking whether Europe (laughs) can save the multilateral order. But in those days, the focus was more on on the World Trade Organization and trade, which is obviously going to be a big topic as the the crisis kind of moves forward. But there have also been these big debates about the future of the WHO, whether it's possible
2: to reform that. What, What do you think the biggest questions are at the moment? I'd like to start by agreeing with Gunilla. I mean, this crisis is arriving at a time when the multilateral system, you know, as we discussed in our paper, was already under strain. And we've seen in the first phase of the international response a lack of coordination. It's worth emphasising, I think, that you know, not everything has been negative in some respects, particularly on the scientific side, there's been quite good coordination and international cooperation and some things are moving ahead very quickly from mapping the you know the genetic makeup of the virus uh, and these accelerated trials that we're seeing for different possible treatments and vaccines but in other respects international coordination was very much lacking and clearly there is a lack of global leadership and we've seen a strong tendency from both China and the United States I think to politicize the international response and for it to play into that kind of uh, global divide that that you spoke about. But, you know, particularly for the countries in Europe, this last period has been one of really scrambling to respond to a threat that moved extraordinarily quickly. If you think that it was only in December that the world became first aware of this danger. And, you know, within a few months, a large proportion of the world's population is in lockdown. So, It's kind of understandable that this has been a period of national emergency. But I think as, you know, we're now at a moment where, in Europe at least, we're contemplating an an end to these first restrictive measures. And I think this is exactly the moment to look forward and to look at what are the remaining challenges with response to this threat and how can the system be improved. And I think there is a lot that can be done in terms of, first of all, trying to kind of shore up the defences, um, public health systems around the rest of the world, where they, if, if the virus escalates, as we've seen it in Europe, you know, where societies could be really at risk. Obviously, a lot of work to be done if vaccines and treatments are discovered, scaling them up and distributing them the same with protective equipment. And then looking beyond that to think about, you know, how can we improve our kind of coordination and cooperation next time round, And that will involve looking at the World Health Organization, but other things as well, I think. Ghanili, you must have worked quite a lot with the World Health Organization over the
0: years. How justified do you think the criticism which Donald Trump has leveled it here, do you think that is justified? Or do you think that um, it is a broken organization? Or do you think it can be fixed?
1: Well, again, it's it's a member state-led organization. And if it's broken and if it's so bad, why haven't they done more about it earlier? I think, and, and there is no doubt that WHO is in the midst of some reform processes and it needs to step up and, and perhaps work differently. But the reaction to this criticism at this period of time and at this scale with these draconic measures really backfired. I mean, this is not the way when you are working with serious reform processes, then you have to support instead. And WHO is really needed for its technical know-how and for the, uh, can I say, the moral rights that the United Nations do rest upon. And therefore, I think for the European Union and for all of us, it's really to think about, so what can we ask WHO to do better and how can we support a change if needed? And of course, it is a very complicated organisation and it has to do a lot of things. And when it happens to do things well, that often happens. It's many times that the member states themselves take the credit for it. And of course, the responsibility lies in the end with the member states as well that are implementing advices and recommendations from WHO. So again, I think the multilateral institutions, they should really be serving the purposes of the nation' wills. And again, if you ask WHO to do better, you also have to invest in WHO. And
0: what do you think the main things that need to change with the WHO are if you were coming up with, a, with a, a kind of wish list for reforms of the WHO system?
1: Yeah, but I think more we have to start to look at, can I say, global health from a more security policy perspective. So for for peace, we have well-functioning structures, we have discussions, we have think tanks and so on and so forth. But for global health, it's so, so fragmented. And there are so many different actors. And when something is not working good enough, some member states that want to fast forward and do more, they create a new institution instead of trying to look in the whole architecture. And I think it has become too much of technical models than political strategic steering guidance. And you have to look at WHO not in isolation. You have to look to many other of the financial institutions that are working around it. Like, as you mentioned, Gavi, Global Fund, and so on and so forth. There are too many of them. And you also have to see who is doing what. And I think we have asked WHO to do many, many, many things. And they are not perhaps as crisp as they should be in order to have the respect with their recommendations. And also now when we are going into an era where we are politicizing our multilateral institutions, then we are at danger, I think, because then the whole credibility can be questioned. And I think China and United States are as good as both of them in trying to impose their own wishes on the institutions and the multilateral. And that's why we need a stronger European Union, because I've been under pressure from the, for example, United States, when it comes to sexual reproductive health and rights, that they want to run the UN according to their domestic policies. So if they are accusing China for things, they also have to look in their own mirror. Hence, Go back to think about a more neutral and well-respected multilateral system. And I know I'm doing wishful thinking, but I think, again, it can be done. It has to. If what you're
0: saying is right, and I think that is quite a compelling analogy, the the biggest threat to human life now could come from pandemics such as COVID-19 and other ones rather than from war. And there are amazing statistics out in the US which show that more Americans have now been killed as a result of the coronavirus than the Vietnam War. Then that would mean a completely different way of thinking about these issues. And also the problems are much more likely to flow across borders than than classic interstate wars. I mean, we obviously have refugees going around the world as a result of, of interstate and intrastate violence, but the ability of a pandemic like corona to, to completely paralyse the global economy is not something that we've seen coming out of any of the wars that we've had since 1945,
2: at any rate. I agree with you. And one thing that's really striking, I think, about the the coronavirus is the way that it's it's affected our lives of course dramatically but it kind of touches on really so many issues of international politics obviously global health but you know the economy in a in a huge way as we've discussed trade if you think of these questions of supply chains and um you know uh, sovereignty strategic sovereignty and health touches on questions of information technology and regulation of, you know, governing surveillance, as we discussed in a, a previous podcast, it touches on other questions about democracy, human rights, and the whole way that you organize your society and you control your population. It does really implicate a lot of the things that are already quite under discussion. And to me, one of the things about it that's that's quite striking is that there's still a lot of unknowns. It's a, a new disease in, in the speed in which it's transmitted is very striking. And I think there's a lot about the international response that we don't know. For instance, one of the things that the WHO has been criticized for um, was its recommendation against travel bans and against trade restrictions. You know, this has been sort of part of the kind of conventional wisdom is that these measures are not effective against a disease that, as you say, doesn't respect borders. And yet a lot of countries did resort to them in a kind of sporadic and uncoordinated way this time around. And I think it'll be interesting and important to look back and to review the effect that those kinds of measures had so that we can try and develop some sort of greater international consensus about the way that states coordinate in terms of their links with each other when you're facing this kind of global threat.
0: So, Gunilla, you're saying that we need to completely rethink the architecture around global health and make it much more central. So in, if you were at, present at the creation, if this is a new kind of 1945 moment and you were redesigning the global system, what sort of architecture do you think we we, we should be looking for?
1: Well, Mark, you know, I'm a conservative person. I don't believe in big banks or revolutionary thinking about a total new order and we're going to redo everything. I would rather think that we use what we have and build on those experiences because we've gone through it before. Now it's new threats, but the need for collaboration is even stronger than before. And to use the institutions we do have, but to really sit down and think, how, are what have we learned from this crisis? How interlinked, and also, of course, the interdependence we do have now in the global economy, as, as Anthony mentioned, we have to, I think, not to end United Nations. I mean, that's the, the cornerstone of multilateralism, isn't it? But rather to ask, so what can be done better and have better member states engagement in that and to really have a clearer view about what is the shortage is here, because I think we need to be able to give up some state sovereignty to really have the space for not only politicians, but also citizens to hear about those collected wisdoms and to be able to be part of the solutions and to have more trust building between those that govern and those that are governed. And that, I think, it's more about around these principles I would like to start and to think, what do we need to solve? And then to hold ourselves accountable, stop creating new institutions for every single issue that is occurring, see the interlinkages, and look into how climate change can interact with healthy societies and and global health. So I think it's more on how you address things than rather how you create a new architecture. Why I mentioned architecture was rather that this is one of the problems today when you try to steer things, it's too siloed.
0: And how would you start moving that agenda forward? I mean, you mentioned several times, Ganila, the EU's role, because the EU still believes in multilateral solutions on many different areas. But we obviously have a big challenge with Donald Trump sitting in the White House. And as you say, he might not be sitting in the White House at the end of the year, but he, there's a good chance that he will be. Uh, Xi Jinping in um, Beijing is... Uh, not necessarily kind of obvious advocate for post-national sovereignty sharing solutions. You have Putin in the Kremlin, you have Modi in power in India, Erdogan in Turkey. To what extent is it possible for the EU to, to build ad hoc coalitions of the willing to move things forward if the multilateral instincts are so unpronounced in in the other great powers?
1: Not easy at all. You need partners. And I think the transatlantic link that was so important when the multilateral system as we know it today was created is now different, as you mentioned. And new powers have arised and must be part of solutions. But I think that's why if European Union has to make this kind of looking into where we are, I think there are a lot of not Economical strong powers, but you have Africa relations that ECFR started to look into. What can be explored there? There are a lot of other opportunities, I think, and it's not something that we read about in the papers today. But you have to start to think about it because it's also a matter for European Union. We haven't been the best in this crisis, I think, in multilateral solutions. Is what a lot of national responses immediately, and that's understandable. But it's also good now to see that the EU are looking at a roadmap and trying to figuring out and also have lessons learned from this. Uh, And meanwhile, doing that, also looking into how can we not only strengthen European Union in terms of crises like this, but also where are our partners and how can we find best solutions for a more global, holistic world? And I think with the President of the United States, you still have a Congress. I mean, it's not a one-man show, even if it looks like that at current. We have to try to figuring out how can we now have a more temptation, multilateral systems ahead of us, Uh, whether it's WHO or WTO or, well, whatever. We, We need this, but they also have to reform and step up to the standards.
0: And what do you think that we could hope for in the next few months, Anthony, then if you look at that agenda that Gunilla just laid out? from Europeans.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, as going back again to to the work we did together. ECFR has tended to identify the need for a sort of somewhat opportunistic approach for Europe in terms of looking for partners on particular issues at a time when there is, you know, a kind of this global turn against multilateralism and for that reason i think this isn't the moment to go back and try and rewrite the rules of the of the who which you know on its face the the international health regulations that guide it um you know are relatively strong for um for an interstate organization of that sort a member state led organization i think it is a question of kind of coordination to you know, to kind of breathe life into the system. And at this moment, I think there will be quite a lot of global concern about the the spread of the virus and the fact that if it's thriving in one part of the world, it's posing a threat to all parts of the world. And therefore, a kind of pragmatic cooperation in the first instance to try and raise money, um, make sure that money is directed in a way that's helping, you know, both public health needs and economic needs um, is something where if the EU led, there could be a kind of, you know, a reasonable international response. And then going forward, I think the EU should lead on this kind of very far reaching review, perhaps done under the auspices of the UN Secretary General. If the EU were to push for that, I think that could be a valuable forum for thinking about changes that can be made in in terms of the kind of international response processes and mechanisms rather than institutions. And that seems like a, a plausible agenda, I think. What's lacking precisely is a kind of an individual or a group to drive this forward. With, with the Saudi Arabia leading the G20 at the moment, the US and China, you know, none of them are really playing that role. And that's where I think Europe could be the sort of driving force.
0: And what do you think about the impact of this on Africa, Gunilla. you mentioned Africa a few times. I mean, you've been dealing at UNAIDS with the, the huge pressure that pandemics pose on the relatively poorly resourced and fragile health systems in, in lots of African countries. What do you think the dangers are of COVID overwhelming Africa and, and how can we best help to shore up the healthcare systems in, in the most vulnerable countries?
1: Yeah, so This is, again, reading service from Africa is really compelling because people are so worried about their livelihoods, about their jobs. And people are pushed now into poverty that can even spiraling down in even worse health situations. I mean, it's a tragedy that we in 2020 still have so many millions of kids dying of pneumonia. We have malaria. We have a lot of diseases that we don't yet have solved uh, and we haven't cared about that kills many more millions than COVID. Now we have the increase of non-communicable diseases, diabetes, obesity, and so on and so forth. We need to start to talk about healthy societies and healthy people, health system strengthening. But It is also, of course, to make sure that we have investments and functioning economies in parallel. And there, I think that European Union, again, with its, in my mind, closest uh, neighbor and very, very important to look at what's happening in the southern neighborhood, it is really strategic investments that can continue to be strengthened. And I'm worried about Africa in many respects, not only in security policy and some weak governance, but equally also on the health situation overall. It can't be solved in isolation. We also need to make sure that there is job and growth. And I think Europe there can do better and be more energetic, may I say so, because there is also a lot of solutions coming from Africa, new innovations, how do you build viable modern health systems that are not over costly for weak economies. So again, I'm I'm optimistic it's why I'm really worried about the current situation.
0: Okay, I think we'll definitely come back to these topics in, in future podcasts, because they're coronavirus is such a huge challenge to to the global system and does seem to be the big project of our generation to work out how we can get the world to come together and reform the different parts of the architecture even if we're not going to have a a 1945 moment which i think you're both uh, absolutely right about we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is our our bookshelf segment what's on your bookshelf at the moment Ganilla?
1: One thing I wish was there because I had a hard copy of the book and the bay band played on. It's an early investigative uh, journalism about the politics and people of the AIDS epidemic from 1987 or something like that. It's done in a chronological order and I really wanted to reread it, but it's in my flat in, in France. So I long to go back there and to be able to read that book again in that hard copy that I do have there, because it's a reminder about uh, epidemics, politics, governance, indifferences, and uh, political infighting. We, we can learn from, a uh, the past. And that's why I've also been reading a lot of Swedish old novels in this period of time. But if I want to recommend something, I think it's worth reading for dinner discussions. And overall, it's uh, Bill Gates notes, the insider edition on the tools we need to fight COVID-19. He issued that the 23rd of April. And that's kind of a good read so that you're up to speed on where are we and, and what can be done.
2: Fantastic. What about you, Anthony? Well, I have to confess that in terms of books, I'm still reading the book that I mentioned two weeks ago because this period of lockdown hasn't really given me as much kind of free time to pursue my reading as I would hope. But what I will mention here is some, some articles that I've been reading on this subject of the global health architecture and the response to the pandemic. Um, and for people who want to learn about the World Health Organization, there was quite a good piece in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, a sort of journalistic account of the, the evolution and some of the current debates. That would be one thing. More recently, there was a piece in Foreign Policy, the website by Colin Lynch, looking at what I think is quite an important issue, which is that Donald Trump is not kind of stepping down in his attempts to use the the whole debate about the WHO as a stick to beat China with. He looks like he's going to step it up in his calls for a review. And this piece really gets inside that US campaign. And the third thing to mention quickly, um, quite an interesting report that was done by the Peterson Institute for International Economics by Chad Bone, about kind of export restrictions on medical equipment. And the author there was somewhat criticizing the EU, because when they they moved from national to this sort of EU level export restrictions, he was saying, well, you know, what does that do for the rest of the world? So again, food for thought there.
0: Okay, and I'm going to recommend a book which has just arrived from Amazon, so I haven't read it yet, but I'm very excited about it, by one of my favourite thinkers from when I was uh, an undergraduate studying philosophy, Martha Nussbaum's new book, The Cosmopolitan Tradition, a noble but flawed ideal, and she starts back with Diogenes talking about himself as a citizen of the world, but she ends by thinking uh, about a lot of the normative challenges with cosmopolitanism for, for the 21st century, so... Once I've read that, I'm sure I'll be able to work out what, theoretical framework we should uh, be building our global health solutions within. I hope it's uh, been fun for the listeners to tease through these big topics. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please make sure that you let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media pages or ours and above all by giving us a rating and review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. We will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr eu slash podcasts. but for now from Gunilla carlson anthony Dworkin, and myself mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ecfr's podcast is lucy Huppenthal, and our editor is marlene riedel thank you very much that was really fun